Hello, this is David Shirley from Irish Funds. So this next podcast is taken from the second of our webinars, which discussed the advantages and appeal of the new Investment Limited Partnership fund structure in Ireland. The panel will outline the formation of the ILP and how Ireland is uniquely placed for private fund market entrants to use as a domicile for European capital raises. The discussion will also take in the new Hong Kong Limited Partnership Fund and the different options and access points both the ILP and the LPF present for asset managers. Just a quick thanks to the Hong Kong Venture Capital and Private Equity Association for supporting this discussion. And you'll hear from four speakers. From Hong Kong, we have Michelle Lloyd from Maples Group and James Ford from Allen & Overy. From Luxembourg, we have Anthonis Anastasio from Alter Domus. And from Ireland, Sinead Colridi from EY. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and check back soon for more great content. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Michelle Lloyd. I am a partner at Maples Group. I am delighted to be moderating today's webinar entitled The Investment of a Partnership, Ireland's New Structure for the Future. So our webinar today is being brought to you by Irish Funds, and we're also delighted to have the Hong Kong Venture Capital and PE Association supporting. So first, I would like to please ask my panelists to introduce themselves. Thanks, Michelle, and good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, my name is James Ford. I'm a partner in the funds and asset management team here at Allen & Overy in Hong Kong. Been based in Hong Kong for about 10 years. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Sinead Colrevi. I am a tax partner with EY based in Dublin and in the wealth and asset management sector. I think we may have briefly lost Antonis. Um, so uh, I'll just mention that Antonis is with Alter Thomas. Oh, there we are. Antonis, you can introduce yourself now, please. Yeah, sorry, a uh, small technical issue. So Antonis Anastasio with uh, Alter Domus um, and uh, managing the Alter Domus management company. Fantastic, thank you. So I might just note at the outset um, that this session is being recorded. Um, a copy of the slides are available as a PDF in the handout section, so you can access that there. And if you do have any questions, please enter them in the questions tab, and we've allocated 15 minutes for questions and answers at the end of the session. So today we're basically going to look at the advantages and appeal of the Irish Investment Limited Partnership. So this is an AIF, AIFMD compliant EU domicile common law partnership which we really do believe will help position Ireland as a leading centre for closed-ended alternative investment funds, especially in the private funds and sustainable finance space. So the panel will also then discuss the new Hong Kong Limited Partnership Fund Ordinance Regime, the LPF, and the different options and access points both the ILP and the LPF present for asset managers. So in February of this year, we saw Ireland's new ILPF taking effect and then also on the 31st of august last year we saw the hong kong lpf regime coming into effect so both have been welcomed by many as much needed steps towards filling the gap in domestic legal framework for the structuring of private equity funds so today we're both going to look at both in detail so on our first slide here we're looking at fastest growing large european fund domiciles so on this graph you can really see um, the prominence of Ireland in terms of its growth year on year. Um, when I'm asked what do I think um, dictates that, I think it's a few key features. We're talking about an English-speaking jurisdiction, common law, an extremely robust regulatory environment, and also a depth of expertise. So just moving on to the next slide, please.
So if we look here at domiciled assets and growth and breakdown, as all of you know, in Europe, there are two fund regimes. There's a usage regime, which is for highly liquid assets, and then the alternatives regime, which sits in AIFMD. So here, when we're looking in the, at the graph in the bottom left-hand corner, we see that in Ireland, users make up 76% of our products that we have, and alternative funds or AFES make up 24%. Um, ESMA last month re released their statistical report for 2021, and this was really interesting in terms of looking down a level at the size of the alternatives universe in Europe, and this really does continue to expand rapidly. So it reached 6.8 trillion at the end of 2019, which is a 15% increase. Real estate funds account for 12% of this at 802 billion, which grew 9% and 35% the year before. And private equity accounted for 7%. And there was a 28% growth in this last year. So definitely a trend towards private equity. Again, we see renewed interest in it. And um, this slide is indicating that even though AFES are only making up 24% of what we're seeing in Ireland. We do expect this to increase and for that use its number to, to, to be more closely aligned with the AFE number over time. Thank you. Um, so here we're looking at the legal structures that are available in Ireland. So since the 90s, we've had Unitrust, we've had private limited companies, the CCF, which is our common contractual fund, which is used predominantly for pension funds. Then in 2015, we had the introduction of the ICAV, which is a corporate vehicle that sits outside of our Companies Act. And since 2015, that has certainly been the legal structure of choice, given its flexibility. Um, in terms of partnerships, um, the old ILP 1994 partnerships, we only have six to date. Um, so. I guess a lot of questions that were asked around this is, does Ireland have a lot of expertise in closed-ended structure, given that we only have six at present? And my answer is yes, because a lot of the ICAVs that we have created over the years are closed-ended. And given the advent of, you know, this new, our revamped Partnership Act, we expect to see a huge amount of interest in it. And as well as having these closed-ended ICAVs in our book of business, all the service providers in Ireland are typically used um, for overseas and offshore funds that are being serviced out of Dublin. So there is a huge amount of expertise in terms of, of servicing closed-ended funds in Ireland, which would be very relevant to our new partnership. So here we're looking at a sample structure chart for a partnership, and we're always asked what are the key differences as opposed to looking at a Cayman or Delaware model. And for us, that's the inclusion of two ad additional service providers, being the depository and the AFM or management company. So shortly when we start our um, panel discussion, Antonis is going to go through in detail the services those two service providers provide to an Irish partnership and how, um, how that's catered for. So now we're going to look at the main features of the partnership. So in terms of the legal framework, um, it's the Investment Limited Partnerships Act 1994 and 2020 in which it was revamped. So it's a common law structure and it, it follows very similar, um, so very similar guidelines uh, to major international sponsors and that GPs and LPs would be familiar with, so such as the Cayman and Delaware Partnership. It's very 
very straightforward and um, and similar to those structures. So in terms of the legal form, it's formed by a GP and one or more limited partners pursuant to a limited partnership act. Um, in terms of global marketing, one of the key benefits you're getting with an Irish limited partnership is that given that it falls within the AIFMD framework, it can avail of the European passport. So it can be sold on a passport passport basis throughout the EEA, and then overseas it's going to be privately placed. And in terms of investor liability, there's limited liability for LPs, provided they don't take part in the management of the ILP. But one of the enhancements that was included in our 2020 Act was including a white list of activities which can be performed by LPs, which doesn't impact on their limited liability status and sets out you know, LPAC activities that can be, um, can be pursued. The next slide, thank you. And um, then, in terms of eligible assets, it's a very broad spectrum in terms of what can be accessed. So, it's obviously very popular for private equity, private credit, real assets, and ESG funds. And um, the service providers, again, the general partner and the AFUM, um, the depository, admin, distributor, auditors, and legal advisors. So I think one point of note is that the Central Bank of Ireland did confirm um, early on in this process that the general partner can be a separate entity to the AFM, which is what industry was pushing for. So your GP can just be a separate corporate or partnership entity you're setting up in Ireland, and you can still have a separate AFM carrying out its activities in accordance with AIFMD. Um, then as well, obviously, the ability to delegate to a non-EEA investment manager. So taking Hong Kong as our example here, we would have the GP appointing the Hong Kong PE firm as the investment manager with full discretion to invest the assets of the partnership. Next slide, please. Then in terms of key legislative enhancements, the naming conventions have been updated, which is very useful for, for example, Chinese PE um, firms that want to also give the partnership a Chinese name. Um, in terms of limited partnership, there's been a revision to the definition of limited partners, which allows to provide for um, subcategories for regulatory reasons, fee treatments, rights, and voting, which is common to what you would see in other leading partnership and um, jurisdictions. In terms of withdrawal of capital, they've made it much, um, much less onerous to withdraw capital from the partnership, um, which has been a really important clarification. Um, also, one other key change was this amendment of the limited partnership agreement. Previously, you had to get all limited partners to consent in writing to any changes to the LPA, which was a huge burden, especially when you know changes are regulatory driven. So um, this has been amended to provide that uh, all changes can be made, provided they're non-prejudicial, with um, a depository certificate. So that is, is very commercial and flexible. We can also establish umbrella partnerships and we can migrate partnerships in and out of Ireland. In terms of clear and robust regulation, and the Central Bank of Ireland is our regulator, which looks after the supervision of partnerships. Some key points here in terms of the authorization process is that Basically, when you want to form a partnership in Ireland, what you'll do is determine who your service providers will be, which would be your third party management company or AFM, your administrator and custodian. And then you'll work with your legal advisors to prepare 
the partnership documentation and the related agreements, then you file those documents with the Central Bank of Ireland and 24 hours later your fund is approved. So unless you have a novel requirement that you need the Central Bank to review, there is no requirement for pre-submission. So it's a 24-hour approval process based on a confirmation from your lawyers that all of the documentation is in order and meets the AFMD requirements. And following that, you have a fully regulated partnership. And um, again, as I mentioned previously, in terms of the general partner approval, we're just looking at setting up a court corporate or a partnership entity to carry out that role, but it's not a regulated entity by the central bank. It just needs to comply with the central bank's fitness and probity regime, which is a very fair standard in terms of setting up that entity. But again, it facilitates speed to market. Um, we'll move on to the next slide, please. So the, so um, to talk about the tax perspective. Thanks, Michelle. So the, the investment limited partnership is a transparent vehicle and I suppose um, not similar to other Irish regulated products which are opaque. So it is disregarded for Irish tax purposes and um, there's no tax leakage at the level of the ILP. The taxation is really on the limited partners where they're resident for tax purposes and then the effect of the investments they have subject to any double taxation relief between the partners and the investments. And I suppose notwithstanding that look through or um, disregarded for tax purposes, there are a lot of tax structuring, which you would expect either above the ILP or below the ILP. And that's really going to be driven by the location of the investors, the type of assets, the, the strategy. And what we are seeing, I suppose, is that underneath the ILP, depending on the assets, you're going to be looking at putting in either a whole co, a section 110, another trading entity, a local entity to hold those assets. So the interplay between the local tax rules and the rules of the limited partners um, will need consideration in setting up any of the, the ILP. And I suppose just to note, a lot of you will be familiar with um, the Irish regulated products. The ILP is an Irish regulated product. The main difference, I suppose, is that it is transparent. And we are, a lot of these structures that we're looking at would have been held in a lot of these regulated vehicles and unregulated vehicles. And I suppose the ILP is just another tool um, in the box to help investors now have a much more tailored or holistic approach in looking at these asset classes. Um, another reason we're really welcoming the, the Transparent Investment Limited Partnership is all around the ECG agenda as well, where now tax transparency, sustainability is in a lot of investors and asset managers um, on their agenda. And with the Transparent Vehicle, it actually gives those investors a look-through approach and direct access to those assets. So we're seeing that as, as an important. Um, the other thing to mention here is that the VAT, um, so similar to other regulated Irish vehicles, there's a VAT exemption on the investor management fees. Um, and finally, I think just that the ILP, again, is a really welcome um, product into the Irish suite of tools that are there already and really gives us that full um, suite of products to be able to go to market and meet the ever-changing, I suppose, evolving needs of the market at the moment. So that's a high level yeah. overview of the of the yeah. tax. Thanks, Sinead. And I think um, 
some very valid points made there and we will dive in, in, in uh, further on in the session into looking at the tax treatment of, for example, assets in China if you're, if you're accessing them through your Irish partnership. So the, the first um, aspect we're going to focus on now in terms of our panel discussion will be service providers and substance. So one of the key differences, as we mentioned, between an Irish partnership and what a lot of PE firms are used to in either Cayman or Delaware is the service providers to be appointed, and in particular, the depository and the AFM. So I'd now please like to ask Antonis if you could provide us with an overview of the services that those two service providers provide to a partnership, please. Thanks, Michelle. <clears throat> so indeed, um, the, the main key providers are the ones that you can see on, on the slide, which is outlined here. <clears throat> now, the, the key difference or maybe the main difference that was coming into play um, with, with this setup is, as we mentioned, the Alternative Investment Fund Manager or the AFIM. Core functions of the AFIM being the portfolio management piece, the risk management piece, valuation, and the remaining, which is what we call the substance requirements, which includes compliance, regulatory, um, and, and the various licenses that are required in order to be able to, to operate, launch, and manage um, your, your, your limited partnership. Um, from the two core functions, which are portfolio management and risk management, as Michelle mentioned before, one of the two can be delegated back out to, um, to a regulated manager in the country or jurisdiction of domicile of the manager. So for example, a Hong Kong regulated manager could be the appointed um, investment manager. And from that perspective, has full authorization over the day-to-day -day management of what goes in and out of the portfolio of the funds, with the remaining functions um, staying at the level of the AIFM. From, from a substance perspective, the AIFM gives you really the, the, the license requirements and the ability to, to launch and manage your funds. Um, and it gives an overall framework around the regulatory requirements, the daily reporting, the general reporting that needs to go back upstream to the regulator and to the investors and provides all of the, let's say, staff which are required at the, the level of the ILP in order to be able to perform and manage the functions. Um, other providers in the setup and the structure, obviously your general partner, which is the governing entity, which has the authorization to appoint, reduce, and uh, remove the different providers which are at the, um, at the level of the, of the ILP. And you, you also then have your administration services, which have your general fund accounting, your, your net asset value calculations. Um, and commingled with this is what we call the transfer agent, which effectively is processing all of the investor subscription, AML, KYC, et cetera. Um, a new function that might be coming, not a new function, but a function that might be different to what some managers might be used to is obviously the depository services. This is effectively the bank which is managing your, which is having the safekeeping of all of the assets and provides what we call the cash monitoring, ensuring that the cash and the bank accounts of the fund are being maintained accordingly. And um, there, there's there's a new there's a new type of player that is coming into the uh, the Irish market today, which is what we call the professional depository, which is more linked to alternative assets or illiquid assets, which do not have a safekeeping custody function like financial instruments. So these new professional depositories are more tailored towards uh, real estate uh, or private equity or debt capital market services. 
um, in, based on the fact that they don't really have dedicated substance that needs to be held within a banking or a custody framework. And therefore, these providers are able to be appointed to your, your structures as well. Uh, other requirements that you would have is really on the corporate services side, more doing your, your domiciliation uh, of your fund and uh, receiving and controlling uh, all of the mail and correspondences that go through and your, your corporate secretary that is providing really more those uh, those corporate frameworks at, at the GP level. I think you hit on one of the key points there and, um, you know, sitting here in Hong Kong and the economic substance has been such a huge theme of the last year to 18 months. And I'm asked constantly, you know, if I want to go to Europe and set up a fund there, whether, you know, it's a partnership in this instance or another type of European fund, are the substance requirements that I will be subject to? Do I need to put people on the ground in Europe? And I think it's really important to emphasize that point again, that you absolutely do not. You can use your third-party hosted AFM solution, which is the typical approach we see all Asian um, asset managers taking when they're moving into the European market. And then you're delegating the investment management um, function back to your licensed type and licensed entity in Hong Kong, who will then have full discretion in terms of the assets of the partnership. So, Antonis, in terms of your AFM solution, um, is there anything you want to add on that, on that substance requirement? You know, that's clear, Michelle. So you do need to have people on the ground in order to be able to manage this. You do need representatives in portfolio management, risk management, valuation, compliance. So you're usually looking at a minimum requirement of around five to eight people in order to be able to set up and manage your AFM. And obviously the third party hosted solution that we offer is, is giving you that possibility by appointing a third party provider. And clearly, as you say, the delegation of the portfolio management means that the manager can receive back all of the authorization to manage the day to day on the portfolio side. I think it's also maybe key to mention for some of the managers that might not be regulated, for example, some of the more alternative managers, there's a second possibility, which is effectively keeping the portfolio management at the level of the AFM and appointing them as the investment advisor. The difference here is that the portfolio manager, which has the full delegation, is uh, authorized to be able to enter into transactions as and how they like. The second model effectively requires the manager to provide recommendations back upstream to the AIFM, which effectively then has the authorization and the license to uh, to take the final decision at the level of the fund. So there are the two models depending on um, where uh, whether the manager has the, the license at the level of uh, the country of domicile or not but it still offers the possibility for both type of managers to be able to gain access to uh, to European uh, fund structures and vehicles like the, the Irish Limited Partnership. Michelle, just to follow on that, for anyone in Hong Kong, please do check with your Hong Kong lawyers before looking at the advisory solution because advising outside of your corporate group is a licensable activity anyway. Mm -hmm. And James, on that, I mean, what the Central Bank of Ireland expect to see is that you've got a type nine license, but type four is typical PE, isn't it? So what's the crossover? Do you see most PE managers in Hong Kong though having that type nine license as well? I think I think we're in something of a state of flux on licensing for PE in Hong Kong. Traditionally, a lot of the, the Hong Kong established um, groups have been looking at advisory structures, advising within a corporate group that includes the general partner of their funds 
on a type four basis um, and potentially even relying on an exemption for intra-group advice within that type four license category. But the recent pronouncements from the SFC and others, I think is leading more people towards a type nine, which is certainly what's required if you're taking investment decisions onshore in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. And then James, as well, just staying with you, you know, in the context of substance um, and, and licensing, I guess, as well, and for the Hong Kong um, LPF, how are those dealt with? So, uh, thanks. And it's great to hear that Ireland has is, is come up with a genuine alternative to Luxembourg for those of us who are looking for passportable structures, particularly in the EU. Um, the Hong Kong Limited Partnership Fund Ordinance is slightly older than the, the Irish um, equivalent, but not much. And it's a new and very flexible vehicle, which was largely driven by the asset man management industry and particularly by the H HKMA in an attempt to promote Hong Kong as a domicile for funds as well as for managers. Um, it offers an awful lot of flexibility. Um, as with the Irish vehicle, it's constituted by an agreement between a GP and the limited partners. From a substance perspective, the GP has to be either a Hong Kong company or partnership, a Hong Kong individual, or a foreign body that is registered as a, with a branch in Hong Kong. Um, it must have an investment manager, which may be the GP, and where the assets into which it's investing mean that it needs to be licensed to manage those assets, then it will need the appropriate license from the Hong Kong SFC. Um, it, will, it will need lawyers in Hong Kong because the lawyers have to sign off on the application to the company's registry. It may or may not have a separate fund administrator. AML will need to be done and signed off in accordance with Hong Kong AML law. Um, again, by the lawyers, the accountants, or possibly by the investment manager. It will need an audit in Hong Kong, and it may or may not have a custodian, depending on the types of assets being invested in, typically for, for private equity or for corporately held real estate. That won't be necessary, but where you're looking at more liquid stocks and bonds, you may well have a third party custodian. Um, from a tax perspective, in Hong Kong, the LPF is basically taxable, but subject to a statutory exemption from tax. But from a classification from an overseas perspective, given the structures, I think the perception is that it's likely to be seen as transparent by other jurisdictions that look at um, limited partnership structures as transparent and obviously for US investors it has the ability to make a protective election to, to be seen as transparent. Has the tax concession been clarified yet for real estate assets James? Um, it's coming, uh, it's, it's almost there particularly for real estate outside of Hong Kong, it's not perfect for real estate in Hong Kong. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, Sinead, just turning to you on that same theme of tax, um, maybe you could explain to us the kind of tax drivers behind substance and whether in your view, you know, you, you continue to see this being a, a theme going forward. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely see it as a, a theme going forward. Um, the whole driver behind substance is I suppose started with the whole OECD and BEPS and international tax policy is to align uh, the taxing rights as to where the actual mm -hmm. value is being added, which would lend itself to, I suppose, economic substance. 
um, one of the action five, the harmful tax practices, um, one of the actions brought in there and the principal purpose test. Now, where there isn't economic um, substance or where they see structures set up principally to obtain a benefit from a double taxation treaty, you know, then it will be denied and the multilateral instrument brought in on that. So that's giving tax authorities, I suppose, validating or um, able to interrogate structures and really figure out, you know, what, what, why is that there? Why is your vehicle in that structure? And I think as advisors and anyone setting up a structure, you really have to question that. And what is your objective? Look at the whole um, structure um, holistically and be able to answer why those structures are there. And if the reason is tax and only tax, then you have an issue. Um, but we are seeing, you know, around economic substance, we're also seeing um, investors looking at consolidating maybe in one jurisdiction and that's helping with that, that substance and that economic substance and where the profits are located. Um, I don't think it's going to go away. Um, and it's just, and it's the international tax landscape keeps changing. The rules are prescriptive in some jurisdictions and we'll probably get to that more prescriptive and in others are objective. So it's not, you can give what is economic substance. So we're saying you look at the structure, be able to explain it. Um, and on that basis, then be able to substantiate where your where your economic substance is. And it's kind of no longer about suppose, having a shiny office and people on the ground. That isn't the answer in all the cases. It's much more objective. Absolutely. And as the lawyers as well, we're continually asked by the Central Bank of Ireland, what is the justification for domiciling this fund in this jurisdiction? So it's something yeah, we all have to be yeah, very cognizant of. Um, now we might turn to structuring and we wanted to please go through some practical examples um, for our audience today in terms of um, partnerships domiciled in either Ireland or Hong Kong and how they're accessing, for example, Chinese assets. So we see a lot of private equity firms in Hong Kong or China and throughout the region establishing partnerships in various jurisdictions that are then you know, acquiring assets in China and how that actually works in practice. So we might start off, please, with James. And um, could you walk us through the various entities you would typically see in such a partnership structure? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, as as you'll all know, the prevalent fund jurisdiction historically for funds investing into China has been Cayman. And what we've typically seen with Cayman funds investing into China is that there will be a multi-layer um, SPV structure below the fund, often in Cayman and then into Hong Kong, um, mm -hmm. looking so far as possible to establish the Hong Kong SPV as a tax resident in Hong Kong and ideally to obtain a tax residency certificate in Hong Kong, and then mm -hmm. investing its own assets into a WUFI, a wholly owned foreign enterprise in China, which in turn will mm -hmm. own the on the ground assets in China. Um, mm -hmm. And that Hong Kong SPV is really the key to that structure because it's looking to ideally have sufficient substance in it to set up a double treaty, a double tax treaty situation between the WUFI and the Hong Kong SPV. And then Sinead, just adding to that, you know, in, in your experience as a tax advisor, how do you see this specific structure working? Um, Similar. Um, so, so again, the, the tax really here is going to be driven by the investor location and the asset location. And given the transparency of the investment limited partnership, you'd look through that and then look at the, 
the holding structure. So whether that is going to be mm. an Irish section woman O, a trading company, mm. or indeed another regulated Irish vehicle, possibly the ICAV. Mm. Um, getting treaty benefit again will depend on the investors and the, the holding structure. Um, Irish mm. funds typically up to now, um, the regulated funds do benefit from a lot of treaties in Asia where we have seen, and this is now at the whole co-level or the, the section woman O, um, I would mark China and South Korea as one where a section woman O can typically not have issues, but definitely it's a risk to look at. They would have very um, strong um, ownership, beneficial ownership and substance. So if there are two jurisdictions, um, where the, the rules would add another layer of risk onto a structure. But typically, mm -hmm. um, we've seen treaty benefits being granted from most of the Asian jurisdictions to Irish corporate vehicles. Yeah, thanks, Sinead. And we've seen that as well in this previous CA Supreme Court case in Korea, which did kind of a deep dive into some of these holding companies and like analysing the tax benefits they were getting. I think since then, there's been a bit of a retrenchment on the Korean front in terms of using various SPVs. But we certainly see it in Hong Kong all the time for investing into China. Um, and then just moving on to the next slide. Um, you know, we do see also a lot of parallel structures being created. And again, this goes back to where your investors are domiciled and who you're trying to access. So, you know, as James mentioned previously, um, the Cayman Fund and the Cayman Partnership Fund would still be the partnership model that would have been most seen in the Asian region, um, which can give you access to investors in different jurisdictions. But when it comes to accessing European investors, it's become much more difficult to do that with, with um, offshore funds over time. So we do see this prevalence of, of parallel structures being created. Um, so Antonis, in turning to you then, maybe you can talk us through the benefits of creating parallel vehicles and some of the issues that PE managers should be cognizant of if they're going to go down this route, please. Well, yeah, thanks, Michelle. So effectively, um, you, you've touched upon one of the main requirements there, and it's really about raising potential capital from um, from European investors. I think um, it makes sense just to give a, a, a quick intro into, into the different methodologies which exist or existed um, in order to be able to do so. And obviously, for, for non-EU managers, one of the methodology that was vastly being used uh, for capital raising in Europe is that of reverse solicitation. Effectively, this requires the investor to initiate some kind of positive action towards the introducer or the sponsor of the fund in order to request the materials and to request information around the fund. Um, and obviously, this, this is the key point around the reverse solicitation framework, which is that it really requires the investor to make some kind of positive action or initiation from their own volition or behalf in order to be able to um, look at investing into the fund. The, the second approach which, which exists is what is often referred to as the Article 42, where the, the sponsors or the initiators are able to use the national private placement regimes in order to be able to to, to market the funds um, and in order to be able to do so it it, it it has different downsides that need to be looked at which requires a direct registration by the manager uh, in order to be able to, uh, to to market the fund but then some jurisdictions have effectively prohibited this type of marketing 
for example, Spain, France, Italy, I believe Austria as well is, is one of the key ones that, 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 that have for the moment blocked this type of marketing. And um, in other jurisdictions, there are key requirements that, that are needed in order to be able to do so. Um, and some jurisdictions, for example, in Ireland and Luxembourg, there's, there's just simple notification processes that need to happen. But in other jurisdictions like Germany, which is um, clearly one of the main jurisdictions for raising capital in Europe, it might take potentially several, several months to be able to do so. So that, that's really a few of the restrictions around NPPRs. And, and really that third approach is, is by utilizing the marketing passport of the AFM, where effectively by appointing your AFM, you are receiving a passport to be able to, um, to, to market throughout Europe. And um, it's clearly what we see more and more as the as the recent trend in 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 raising capital from from European managers uh, by utilizing that passport, which then becomes a notification from the AFM to the country which you would like to to market, and from that point onwards, it opens the marketing to. Um, to, uh, to, to the manager or the representative which is doing the distribution to be able to do so. So this has led um, the, uh, the, the increased, let's say, requirement for non-EEA managers to set up a, um, a European sleeve or a parallel fund structure in order to be able to do so. Um, and, and raise capital from European investors. There, there's maybe an additional point which is coming into play in regards to marketing, which is the, the new regulations that are coming into play this year in August of um, in August of this year, which which effectively gives some clarifications as to what is constituted as pre-marketing. Um, and effectively, it gives a bit of a definition as to when pre-marketing is initiated and some jurisdictions which have different requirements around pre-marketing will now get this more harmonized requirement as to what constitute pre-marketing in, 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 the, in the country. So that means that effectively um, there's a pre-marketing period of 18 months, which is, is when the manager will still require potentially to have one of the two um, either passport or national private placement in order to be able to market the vehicles, which has a direct impact obviously on reverse solicitation as it, it, it potentially disadvantages managers that are looking to market those funds within that 18 month period, which will now require some kind of marketing passport in order to be able to do so. So this restricts a little bit the, the first point around reverse solicitation and um, pushing a lot of the managers to, to launch their parallel structures um, with an appointed AFM and utilizing that marketing passport. Thanks, Angela. I think you hit on a lot of really important points there. So I think we have seen a lot of managers using reverse solicitation as a marketing tool, which it absolutely is not. You know, it's not a method of circumventing AIFMD and its requirements. You know, but we still see huge appetite for people using it where they only have a small number of European investors in their offshore partnerships. 
So we do have this scenario where you've a lot of partnerships with Hong Kong managers appointed to them with a huge number of European investors, but they're relying upon reverse solicitation. They're obtaining you know, a certificate from the investor saying it was reverse solicitation, but we frankly would look ask them to look beyond that. We'd like proof of you know an email chain demonstrating it was a genuine um, investor approach. Um, but again, this reverse solicitation piece is going to change over time. So exactly what you said, Antonis, you're looking at either registering your partnership under the National Private Placement Regime in Europe, which has its its own nuances to be navigated, or else setting up a, a parallel vehicle, which we do see more of um, now. And given that we've seen kind of a change in European investor sentiment as well, towards Chinese assets, and I think this happened kind of, you know, with MSCI inclusion, with Chinese stocks being included and being increased over time. There's a lot more knowledge in Europe about assets in China. So even that there's more interest in Chinese assets and that drives more Chinese asset managers to set up funds in Europe and kind of the cycle continues. So on the private equity space, it's the same. We see more European investors being interested in Chinese PE. And as a consequence, if they want to be accessed, we'll need you know, Hong Kong and Chinese P firms to go to Europe to set up funds to properly capture this money. So I think the theme of parallel funds will certainly continue. And James, in your experience, you know, do you see parallel fund structures a lot? And how would that operate in the context of having, for example, a Hong Kong partnership in a structure being parallel to a European partnership? Yeah, thanks. I think, um, yes, we do see parallel partnerships quite a lot and on an increasing basis. And certainly the proportion of money that's been coming into our clients' funds from Europe over the last five to five to seven years or so has increased fairly dramatically. And so is the geographic diversity of where that's money money is coming from. A few years ago, we were quite comfortable with national private placements on the basis that you were only really getting money from the UK, Germany, maybe the Nordics. But as the investor appetite in other areas of Europe has really increased, I think, the need for a passportable vehicle has really um, has really jumped up the agenda. And historically, the parallels would have probably been Cayman on the one side for the US investors and other non-Europeans. And mm -hmm. um, pretty much the only show in town was Luxembourg on the European side. And it's great to see a common law English language vehicle emerging, which I think will be really attractive to some of the managers that we work with as a passportable option for that. Um, and early days, but I can see the situation where um, onshore execution and confidence in tax treatment will mean that over time, hopefully the Hong Kong LPF will take an increasing share of the um, of the market segment that was previously occupied by the Cayman Fund ELP on the on the left of the diagram. Yeah, yeah, certainly interesting times, and there's a lot for I think PE firms to consider when they're looking at their their domiciles. And then Sinead, just looking at this parallel structure from you know a tax perspective, is there anything that managers should be cognizant of as well as they're looking at putting a structure similar to this in place? Um, on the parallel structure, no, like it, it's um typically set up kind of for investor preference and um investment. The the limited partnership, I suppose, that we haven't touched on in any of the transparent. One thing is that most of the investment return generally with these type of assets comes by way of um, capital uplift as opposed to an income return. Um, so mm -hmm. looking at the the tax treaty between the investors and the, the investment, 
and the investors themselves being exempt from tax, but we haven't touched on that, but that capital return as opposed to income is probably um, in these structures something to look at. But um, we've seen parallel structures, I suppose, up to now in a lot of Irish structures with either kind of different feeder funds coming in, the Cayman LP, the US using um, Delaware as well. So it is something that in most structures you would have a parallel structure depending on where the investors are coming from. So no new tax issues, kind of more of the same. Again, you're looking at substance and being able to substantiate that and why are you doing it? Um, that it's not for tax reasons. Okay. Michelle, if I can also just quickly um, step into something which was mentioned there by, by James, and indeed what is key that we see now is Luxembourg did used to be the the go-to when it came to these kind of limited partnerships, and obviously with Brexit, uh, now there was the loss of the UK limited partnership from the structuring toolbox for raising capital in Europe, and that's why the Irish ILP is really important for the moment. Um, and, and a couple of the key points which we see that differentiates it from, from the Luxembourg setup is, well, obviously now, as you mentioned before, the GP does not need to be regulated, which was the, the consistent, let's say, issue that, that, that was there before. But um, the Irish uh, LP gives that uh, umbrella possibility, which is, which is very important from that standpoint, because at the end of the day, uh, you're able to launch multiple sub-funds under the um, the setup, and that's something which is very key here. And and obviously mm -hmm. the fact that um, it it gives the it gives the possibility that you you have the approval from the regulator. It kind of gives you also a stamp to say that at the end of the day this is a, a regulated product directly by the um directly by the uh, the local regulator which is something which is different from let's say the um, the luxembourg partnership yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head there Angela. you know the regulation piece we see as being key in terms of offering this irish partnership product and you know it's a theme we've seen over the last few years and indeed we see a lot of taiwanese pension funds investors for example having to invest in a regulated product and that in that instance then an irish partnership which is regulated by the central bank of ireland would um would fit the bill and um, now we're just going to return and, and talk a little bit more about you know distribution and investor sentiment towards these um domestic partnership structures so James, just kind of you know, like talking broadly then about the Hong Kong LPF. Obviously, it came out last August. Maybe you could just give us all a bit more information in terms of you know how many have been launched to date, and um, who's driving the launch of these products? Is it GPs or LPs? Is investor familiarity an issue, or how is that being overcome? Um, last time I checked the register, I think we were at about 170 or 180 LPFs registered since um, the ordinance came into force. Obviously, not all of those will have raised capital yet. I think initially the, the take up has been in the kind of small to medium size Hong Kong and greater China based management community. But we are starting now to see take up from from much much bigger global asset managers not as a investor facing fund vehicle just yet but certainly for roles within their structures that need partnerships and where the hong kong lpf has the flexibility and the speed of execution that makes it quite attractive from that perspective as well as also being firmly in hong kong from a double tax treaty perspective and so um 
you know, over time, like talking about investor familiarity, then again, obviously that's something that would need to be surmounted, you know, mm. both on the Hong Kong and the Irish side when we're it's selling these products. So do you think over time that, you know, the Hong Kong LPF might benefit from a passporting scheme or are there any issues that you've seen to date around private placing the, the LPF in Asia? And I think the Hong Kong the Hong Kong LPF has the great benefit that as a common law limited partnership structure like the Irish Investment Limited Partnership, mm -hmm. English funds, Cayman funds. From an investor familiarity perspective, the LPAs are going to look very, very similar to what they're used to um, with kind of replacement of statutory references and governing law being probably the most significant changes. Um, mm -hmm. We haven't seen any issues as of yet in private placing Hong Kong partnerships around Asia or anywhere where any other partnership can can routinely be marketed. Um, obviously, there are constraints in Europe with the lack of passporting, and I think third country passporting into into the EU under AIFMD has been a, a topic that most of us on this call have been talking about for ten years and waiting to see when it's going to come. Um, to the extent that keep waiting, probably yeah. rolling rolling our eyes and um, yeah. going to parallel structures to get around that mm. very problem. But and I think realistically, I think that's Brexit has probably delayed third-party passporting for a long time um, because sorting out equivalence between the UK and the EU is probably, at least for the EU, for the UK, if not for the EU, is kind of the number one issue, and it's hard to see how other third countries are going to jump start jump that process in terms of passporting. So I think we are going to be relying on parallel structures for funds with significant. Um, marketing intent in Europe for the foreseeable future. And then Antonis, you know, from from your view in terms of selling the Irish partnership, um, are there any issues that you foresee or obviously, you know, in your AFIM role, you're responsible for distribution. Are there any themes or trends that you'd like to share to date? Um, well, obviously, the, the key point that James had mentioned there is really that third party passporting, which indeed has been going on for the last 10 years. And um, there's key countries that were looking to do this in order to be able to benefit from those kind of setups and not having to do that, that kind of parallel. Uh, vehicle, but I think it's it's key to note that AIFMD has been around now for quite a while, and and the appointments of an AIFM and how things are managed have been around for 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 um, uh, close to eight ten years now. So at the end of the day, it's much more standardized. The marketing notification process now is something that is relatively very smooth to be able to do, and there's there's clear solutions as to how you can market and how you can reach out to investors. So for for non EEA managers today looking to to come into Europe in order to be able to raise European capital, they benefit from that because the, the setups are in place and the structures are in place. And a really good test of this was Brexit because at the end of the day, managers that had the possibility to market into Europe, which were UK domiciled, suddenly could not. So they had to move in either to set up their regulated structures within the EU or appoint a third party manager like ourselves. And that was really the test of the model to see if it actually worked. And yeah, from the 1st of January of this year, there was a large number of funds that were brought into play by using that kind of parallel structure or model 
um, today, and clearly it works. So the, the solutions are available to, to managers that want to raise capital in the EU, and they're well tested for the moment. So that, that's something which is key and important to note. Yeah, fully agree. Um, and then Sinead, you know, I think we've both been fortunate to look on the work on the first partnership that launched um, under the new ILP regime since the launch in February. So what do you see take up being like for Ireland's new partnership structure? Do you see there being a lot of demand? And again, what do you see European investor sentiment being like towards PE managers that are targeting them? Yeah. Um yeah, um, and, and and looking at um, the Pitchbook Quarter One report, actually the PE in Europe, it's had a really good start and a strong start. There's a lot of funds coming in, a lot of new funds. A lot of that is um, around distressed credit, but definitely PE is strong in Europe and from the first of this year. Um, mm -hmm. I see with clients is a lot of interest in the ILP, um, a lot of questions about it. We are seeing them set up. Um, the trend that we're seeing is it's probably the mid-tier rather than the larger asset managers that are looking to set it up. However, I think once there's a few up and running um, and have been authorized and working well, I see that increasing. Um, I would say investor sentiment and European is quite strong. Um, and definitely then we're seeing probably from a smaller base um, into Asia, the alternate strategies that is being used by PE structures in Europe. Um, they probably favor Singapore more as a holding company. Um, another where we're seeing is the infrastructure assets in Asia um, also being um, invested in by European investors. So good. Yeah. Michelle, yeah. sorry, if I can just step in for one last point. I think the, the globalization of companies today as well really helps because you do have most of the companies which have a presence in um, in um, Asia, for example. So that's something which is key because you've got really that 24-7 servicing. You, you have areas where the managers can have their counterparts speaking to them in Asia, in Hong Kong, etc., when they have their parallel structures also out of Europe. And, and that kind of flexibility enables really that round-the-clock sort of servicing because once once the, the manager has the contact with their local providers, which then has the contact with their EU providers from that standpoint and gives them that flexibility to be able to manage round the clock and eliminates that sort of timing issue that exists. So I think that's that's really quite important for 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 managers when when they're looking to set up that that aspect to have a company that is able to service them on on both sides of of the geographical location of their funds. Absolutely. Then, you know, in terms of final thoughts, obviously, you know, if you're a PE firm, you have so much choice currently in terms of fund domicile. Um, there seem to be more choices than ever before with all these revamped structures being created throughout Asia and Europe and globally. Um, so the fund domicile and the supporting regulatory framework, I think, is key in terms of making the decision as to where to domicile your fund. And obviously, in the European space, accessing European investors is a huge driver, too. But I'm going to ask each of you now. So what, in your view, are the key factors that PEs should be analysing before selecting their fund domicile for their PE fund? So maybe, James, I'll start with you. Thanks. Um, I think I think the key one is the biggest driver for everyone is tax. 
Um, next biggest is probably investor familiarity, but I think there's two two details that I probably pick up on that probably aren't thought about as much as they should have been prior to the last year or so that we've all, all been through, and that is um, whether whether the vehicle you're choosing is going to allow effective fundraising during work from home environments and that's two things really one is electronic signatures in the local legal regime uh, and the second one would be how the aml regime works and whether that requires delivery of wet ink originals certified copies and other things that are difficult to do in a remote environment yeah yeah i think um, Cameron just recently introduced the ability to notarize um documents remotely which is uh amazing so uh fully fully flexible but i think yeah ireland i think on in the european context is certainly more flexible on that front too and then elsewhere we've never required you know notarized documents or filing with the central bank of ireland but certainly absolutely something that that's that's key in this market at the moment and then Sinead, yeah, um, fully agree with James' points and good that Ireland are kind of top two then. The other thing I think I'd add on is service providers um, and the structure that is there in Ireland. And while we don't say up to now had, had the ILP, Ireland, um, you know, the service providers, we actually provide outsourcing services to a lot of the hedge funds that are located outside of Ireland. So that expertise mm -hmm. um, is they're located in Ireland. It's a competitive, very kind of efficient um, service provider environment. And I think that is attractive to a lot of asset managers. So I think that whole infrastructure and the importance of Irish funds to the overall Irish economy is something as well that um, I think is attractive to asset managers. Anthony? I think if, if I expand a little bit on, on the point of Sinead as well, there's, there's real specialized expertise when it comes to alternative funds now as well. And um, selecting providers that, that have that direct knowledge in private equity, real estate fund structures or debt funds is, is really quite key in order to be able to, um, to have, let's say, more of efficient or smooth um, development in the fund structure. That's, that, that's very important. And obviously, to what we already mentioned, it's, it's also quite refreshing to be able to have different um, opportunities or possibilities within the structuring toolbox. For example, the, the the new Irish sort of limited partnership that we're discussing here, which gives a little bit more flexibility to managers to be able to um, select the, the jurisdictions that they're going to be launching their parallel vehicles and structures. Yeah. So I would now like to take the opportunity to thank my panelists for their contribution today. Thank you all very much um, for all of your thoughts and views. Uh, it's much appreciated. We're hoping that both the Irish partnership and the Hong, Hong Kong partnership will continue to grow and we'll see um, continued interest in them. I might also add that there is a survey that will pop up after this webinar finishes and we very much appreciate if you could complete that after the webinar. Thank you all very much for joining us today.